You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We are going to return to the book of Philippians as we alternate between Cornell and I. Cornell doing the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and I am in the book of Philippians. Now we left off in chapter 1 in verse 30 last time, and I then began to start chapter 2. And I actually got down to verse 2. And now we're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4 in chapter 2 of Philippians. So before we start, I'd like to open in prayer. So if you would bow with me. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this privilege of being able to gather together as your children and to be able to look at your word, examine your word. And we look forward to the work of your Spirit in us, in not only enabling us to understand your Word, but also to apply these truths to our lives. I thank you, Father, for the gathering of the saints here at Kootenai Community Church, and we ask, Lord, that you would, most of all, through our prayer, through our study of your word and through the proclamation of your word and through songs and hymns, be glorified, that you would be lifted up above all and that you would be honored and glorified. We just thank you and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I'm going to just read the first uh, few verses that we are had already covered, and then read the verses 3 and 4 in chapter 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Paul begins with this. Now, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, Paul has changed direction here. He opened in chapter 1 with his greeting to the saints in Philippi. Then he wanted to give them encouragement because they were concerned about Paul's condition, his treatment as he was imprisoned in Rome, awaiting uh, the verdict. He had been sent to prison and now he awaits the verdict of the charges brought against him. And he wanted to give them assurance of his love for them and that 
the gospel was continuing to go forth and the Lord was prospering the gospel as even while he was incarcerated. So Paul was encouraged and he wanted to express his love to the saints of Philippi, but he also wanted to let them know that the gospel was going forth. And even amongst the praetorian guard, whom he had, of course, opportunity to share the gospel. Now, as he changes direction in chapter 2, he wanted to direct the Philippians, not just to the aspect of his condition, but now he focuses on their conduct. He was very concerned about the testimony that the Philippians would bring forth through their conduct. He didn't really care uh, about his own condition. That really wasn't even spoken of, other than to give them comfort that the gospel was going forth, and then immediately expresses his love for them, praise for them. And in chapter 2, he goes right to the aspect of their conduct. What's interesting, because Paul lifted them up and praised them in the first chapter, and now he hones in on something that was a concern for him. He wanted them to exercise love towards one another. He wanted them to exhibit this Christian love and express it in harmony within the body. So, as we consider this, we look at the condition of the world. And there's a great absence of peace and harmony and also unity. So, in this, what is the message of the church? What is the gospel? What is it that would be so important to Paul that he would sacrifice and give his whole life for. The gospel, which not only by grace and God's mercy saves us, but it also delivers us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately, when we're in our glorified bodies, from the presence of sin. So this gospel is so precious to Paul but it isn't just bringing people to the knowledge of Christ. It is then discipling them in a deeper walk with Christ. And that's what Paul is focused on. Many inside the church, in the universal church, is outside the church, look at this group of people as some kind of an institution that reminds people of what they need to do and what they need not to do. And it's looked at even by some people within the, the universal church in such a manner. Rather than understanding the people of the body of Christ are delivered and saved and redeemed by Christ's blood. They've been bought with a price. Now Paul wants them to not only understand that, but he wants that to manifest in them. And as we look at this uh, admonition of Paul to these saints, this is a pretty...
probably one of the most significant passages on harmony within the body of Christ throughout all Scripture. So this is an important text. We need to look at this with understanding and with the knowledge that God has given this to His people to live out. So as we consider this and we look at the overall universal church, we can recognize that that isn't being practiced universally. So we need to take heed. Now the worldly philosophy is that of tolerance and a call to brotherhood and peace and friendship. The worldly philosophy is diversity. And they want to think that everyone is going to be embraced. And it's much the same in the universal church. People think, well, we're just all one. Anyone that names Christ or says the name of Christ, we're just one. And it's this philosophy that, you know, we just need to have peace. We're not truly understanding what peace represents biblically. What is the peace of God? And that's what Paul was wanting them to manifest in their lives. Having now been brought to peace in God through salvation, Paul wants them to live as brothers and sisters in complete harmony and unity. The people that look upon the church wanted to make a stronger appeal, or a stronger appeal, I should say, for brotherhood and understanding. They feel that the church should make an appeal to the world to disarm and to cease quarreling and stop fighting and urge that all should just be brothers and live together in peace. When, because of their depravity, are just full of hypocrisy even in thinking that. But those within the body of Christ, some have embraced this worldly philosophy of just having this tolerance for everything and diversity in disregard to God's Word and in disregard to God's direction for the body of Christ. But that's not what Paul is calling for here. He's not telling them to just have peace and goodwill towards men. This thinking has gone on through throughout the ages. The tragedy of this focus of the world philosophy in, within the universal church is they fail to understand the doctrine of sin. They don't factor that in when they make this universal call to peace, and brotherhood. They don't understand that man, apart from Christ's redemption, can do nothing that would please God. The New Testament clearly teaches that the world will never know a state of peace until Christ's plan is completed. The realistic view of man and his condition shows us that any solution of peace will just be superficial and short-lived. These verses are among the greatest understanding of peace and unity. Remember that Paul reminded the Philippians that 
there was no external conditions that could rob him of his joy. And he expressed that in the first chapter. doesn't matter what our condition is. doesn't matter what our circumstances is. We have Christ in us as true believers that have been redeemed and regenerated by the blood of Christ. And so Paul wants him to focus on that. He wants him to understand it doesn't matter what circumstance we're in or what political condition your country is in. It doesn't matter about any of that because we have Christ in us. We are here for a purpose and for a time and a season. And in that time, as Christians, God wants us to grow in the knowledge of Christ and bring forth the gospel to the unsaved. Yes, Ron. Are you speaking about the church, the body of Christ, or are you speaking about the political direction? Mm -hmm. Okay, the question is, uh, in light of the uh, current contemporary situation in the world, should the focus of the church be on pursuing peace in other nations, or should it be on, did you say, proclamation of the gospel? Right. So the question is, uh, should we be focused on trying to minister on a local level as believers in Christ, or look at the broader picture of the world uh, lack of peace and harmony, and really the only thing that can bring peace whether locally or universally to the world, is that of the gospel. Therefore, when we send out missionaries to various countries, that is the focus. They don't go in there to try to change the culture. They live within a culture and minister the gospel to those in the various cultures throughout the world. So the focus always comes back to Christians practicing their faith, living out their faith in such a way that they are a light to the dark world. So our focus, yes, should be concerned for the souls of people throughout the world. But as far as wars and rumors of wars, that will always continue until Christ returns. We can promote, you know, biblical standards and try to live and proclaim moral standards throughout the areas that we live in as Christians, whether it be in America or throughout all the world, that standard should be lived out, the biblical standard. The unregenerate cannot follow biblical standards apart from regeneration, but they can see the distinction from the world and from Christianity. And that is where the focus should be. Our lives making a difference, whether we're here or we're in a foreign land promoting the gospel. It has to be lived out and then the gospel proclaimed. Does that make sense or answer it? Or? Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> In chapter 2, verses 3, it says, Let nothing be done 
through strife and vainglory. In one uh, translation, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit in the New American Standard. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Because of man's depravity, even Christians are still living in this body of sin. We can't lead to anything but trouble unless we're guided by God's Holy Spirit. We can do no right or follow God's Word apart from God's grace and the empowerment of God's Spirit. So, Paul reminded these believers in Philippi in the very first chapter in verse 6 that he who began a good work in us will fulfill it or complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. He wanted to bring them back to the essence of their transformation beginning. That is, regeneration and salvation. Now, he's focusing on the sanctification. He wants them to not only understand what Christ has done, but now to live that out in a manner which would impact the unregenerate that they are exposed to daily. And that comes back somewhat to what Ron stated. Are we to make an impact here or focus on this, our local society? Yes, we should. And should we focus on the world's needs? Yes, we should. And that, in part, is done through sending out of missionaries or contributing to some of the basic needs of man for food and clothing. But the most important is that of reaching out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is made up of regenerate people. That is, those that have been saved and regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. But we can still bring wrong thinking into the church. The only things this seems to be wrong in the Philippian church, and it threatens them, is the spirit of disunity. And Paul addresses it uh, more specifically in, as we move on to chapter 4. But let's examine what Paul means by the words vainglory and strife and empty conceit. According to the Bible, pride is the ultimate source of disharmony and disunity. And it is a basic cause of all sin. Man sets himself up in pride and arrogance as the supreme authority and wants to do his own will and doesn't desire to do anything for others. That's the unregenerate man. Paul is showing us in this verse the spiritual unity that he's calling them to is achieved only through the power of God's Spirit. There are three negatives and two positive statements that Paul makes in this context. Let's look at the essence of selfishness. Selfishness is at the top of Paul's list here. And it is the placing of our will above God's will. And Paul in the another area of Scripture says, do nothing in the way of selfishness. And selfishness is also totally excluded 
from the innermost thoughts and hearts. And in verse 117, Paul used the same word for selfishness rendered selfish ambition. When he says to them, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. As we looked at in chapter 1, there were some in Philippi who were jealous of Paul even while he was in prison. And they were proclaiming the gospel because they wanted to go forth and actually did so with wrong motives. Their desire wasn't a true, pure motive for bringing the gospel to the lost to see them forgiven, transformed, and regenerated to serve Christ. No, they had wrong motives, but yet they brought forth the gospel. And Paul was rejoicing in that, even though they had wrong motives. He wasn't rejoicing over their wrong motives, but just for the fact that the gospel was being brought forth. Selfish ambition uh, is a very destructive sin. It uh, persistently seeks personal advantage and gain, and regardless of its effects on others. It can be the cause of quarreling, infighting, and strife. Selfishness is a consuming and destructive sin. Because of this sin, like every other sin, it begins with a sinful heart. We're all guilty in some form and at some time of this sin. Even when it's not outwardly manifest, selfishness uh, breeds anger and resentment and jealousy, and, and no church is really immune from this sin. Sometimes it's clothed in some kind of a pious rhetoric by someone who is convinced that their way is superior than somebody else's. And sometimes it's uh, as such as the church in Corinth, whom I always tried Cornell about, they had the problem with this. Paul addressed it in this way. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. That was in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. So now Cornell has expounded that and uh, given us exposition of that text. But we understand in Corinth there was great bickering. And even to the point where they were saying that they were preferring to follow one person or another person. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But as we consider that, even though I chided Cornell at times about the Corinthians church, or the church in Corinth, there was no difference in any other body in the New Testament, and there's no difference today. Any time that we turn to uh, follow something that goes against God's Word and we sin in any way, it brings in this selfishness and this contempt and disharmony. So it is a, a danger in any local church at any time in church history. 
Paul goes on and says, forsaking empty conceit. And that's the second negative. It means for, uh, <clears throat> promoting spiritual unity. This is formed in the adjective meaning empty and the noun glory, which the King James renders vainglory. Selfish ambition pursues personal interests and personal goals. Empty conceit seeks personal glory and praise. So a person of this kind of conceit considers himself always to be right and expects others to agree with him. Now, um, I must say, there's times in my Christian life that I'm ashamed that I've you know, tried to argue somebody into a position of understanding a certain doctrine, and I did not do so in love. And I've done that shamefully in my Christian life at different times. It's sin, and we need to repent when we do such. <clears throat> the only unity he seeks is uh, self-centered unity when somebody is full of empty conceit. And they also have this arrogance and this pride and they are wise in their own eyes as Romans speaks and reproves the uh, church of Rome in chapter 11, verse 25. The ancient Greeks thought that humility was a mark of weakness. But they also recognized that a person's view could be exaggerated and presumptuous and contemptible. Their term for such exalted pride is in a word in the English language, language today. It's the word hubris. We perhaps use that or heard it used. Its meaning is this. It's wanton insolence or arrogance caused by excessive pride. That's an English word and it expresses this quite vividly. Paul lists sins that characterizes unbelieving and rebellious mankind in Romans 1.30. But Paul uses a word derived from hubris, which is rendered insolent. In Galatians 6.3, Paul warns, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And the third essence that Paul is promoting here in unity is positive. He then says, with humility of mind. This is just the opposite of selfishness. Humility of mind is the foundation of all Christian character. In the Beatitudes, it refers to poor in a spirit in Matthew 5.3, which is synonymous with humility of mind. Humility of mind literally means lowliness of mind. <clears throat> in the Greek uh, literature, lowly was used exclusively in a contemptuous way and most commonly of a slave. It was used to describe what was vile, what was common, what was unfit, and having little value. This word is translated lowliness of mind has not been found in any extra-biblical 
Greek literature before the second century. It seems to have originated in the New Testament, but it always has a positive connotation. Humility of mind is the opposite of pride, and it always separates the fallen man from God, making them, the, in effect, their own gods. They exalt themselves. Humility is a virtue. And in the Old Testament, in the Proverbs, the writer pins this. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom, in Proverbs 11.2. And then later on in Proverbs, it says, It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud, Proverbs 16.19. Zechariah describes the coming of the messianic king as just and endowed with salvation, humble and riding on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. Moses was very humble and more than any other man on the face of the earth, Numbers 12.3. Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble. Matthew 11:29. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility. He wasn't puffed up about this. He was just bringing forth in essence what the attitude of Christian charity and Christian character presents. That is... Living in humility. People are sometimes talk about humility and do so in a manner of not truly understanding that this is the essence of Christian character and something that we should be embracing and practicing as believers. To regard one another as more important than themselves, regard comes from the verb that means more than just having an opinion. Now this is key to understand the meaning of this. It refers to a carefully thought out conclusion. In other words, when we think of someone as more important than ourselves, it isn't just an arbitrary statement. It is actually thinking and concluding based on truth. It doesn't mean to pretend that others are more important, but it actually means to believe that they actually are more important. And more important means to excel, surpass, or be superior to. So we have to think about this statement. If we're to consider others as more important than ourselves, then we are focusing on other individuals and considering their lives, their essence, as more important than our own. That's not something that is natural for man. And it's not even natural for a believer unless he is empowered by God's Spirit to be able to recognize and humble himself to the point of looking at others as more important. That is, looking at each individual in the body of Christ, and outside the body of Christ. That's hard to do. 
Think about it. Think about it from a political standpoint. Think about it from the essence of some of the atrocities that we see carried out. How can you think of another individual as more important than ourselves? This is what Paul is calling them to. We need to look at our own sin and know our own hearts. And we need to understand that of depravity and how God in His grace chose us, called us with an effectual calling and brought us into the body of Christ. That was pure grace. And as we think of that, we can recognize we, if someone like Paul can say, I'm the chief of sinners, how can we look at ourselves and think somehow that we are better than another individual? The Apostle Paul, who considered him the least of all apostles, he considered himself. He considered himself the greatest and chief of sinners. And when we look at that, in light of this text, we have a little clearer picture of what Paul is calling us to. Paul viewed himself as the least of the apostles and not even fit to be called an apostle in 1 Corinthians 15.9. The very least of all the saints in Ephesians 3.8. And even the foremost of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. How could any believer honestly think of themselves as higher than another? The fourth negative, and as we proceed, Paul says this, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but pay pay close attention and special consideration to others. In this text, it includes merely and also. In the following phrase, by using these words, he is rejecting the essence of during that period, the asceticism that people were practicing that he attacked in the epistle of Galatians and also in Colossians, I believe. He was looking at that as just a form of sin and recognizing this is where people are trying to bring themselves to a more favorable position before God by abstaining from something or not eating certain foods. The Essenes practiced this and Paul rebuked that and called it out as heresy. It just caused spiritual pride and legalism. There's no place for spiritual pride with false humility or false humility. Personal interests can relate as also serving the Lord. Some people seek their own ministry priorities. Some may think, well, uh, it's more important to focus on the Word. Others may focus on youth outreach, or others may focus on various other ministries. There's countless possibilities for conflict within a local church. Everyone has a different priority, and they want to bring that forth. And yet, Paul here is wanting us to realize that we do not and should not seek our own interests, but that of others. 
that's one of the key elements of having harmony within the body of Christ. We've all seen it and perhaps practice it in various forms. Well, I think this is really an important focus. Let's, let's look at this. That's fine. But not to dominate and think somehow that our personal interests should surpass anyone else's. And if we factor in that we are to look at others as more important than ourselves, this would reduce or eliminate that attitude completely. That's wrong. Actually, the, uh, in the context, he's, he's addressed it to believers, but others would be broadened in the sense that they are in Philippi. It wasn't a huge body. And, and they were reaching out to the lost in Philippi. So we wouldn't just narrow it down, or he, this text wouldn't narrow it down to just looking at Christians and considering their interests. But we were all unregenerate at some time. So as we look at others, that's in our community, our family, our neighborhood, within the universal church. How do we fit that in there? How do we look at a neighbor who is uh, maybe has an offense against us and treats us with disdain? Paul says to consider them as more important than ourselves. So our focus then changes. We then have a concern for their soul. We recognize, uh, yet by the grace of God, that it go I. So the focus broadens into all mankind. So it is, even though he is addressing it to the church, he is speaking to regarding all people. Okay, I'm going to, I was not watching my time here. I'm going to hold it right there and we will pick up here uh, in this area of this verse in verse 3 um, of considering others as more important than ourselves. Thank you for the questions. And if you have further questions, we'll be able to address them as we pick up next time. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of being able to not only read your word and study your word, but also to practice your word by your grace. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity you give us in a lost and dark world to bring forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just pray, Father, as we continue to worship and praise and proclamation of your word, that you would be truly glorified and that we would be edified and that we'd exercise and practice these truths. We just pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.